Follow Without Warning Podcast Season 3, Investigation Derailed with Sheila Waisaki on iTunes, Stitcher, and Google Play. Without Warning Podcast presents Season 3, Investigation Derailed. Come behind the curtain with private investigator Sheila Waisaki and examine a major injustice. Warning, the following episode contains elements that are graphic in nature. Listener discretion is advised. I'm back again discussing some of the common roadblocks families who have lost loved ones under suspicious circumstances face as they look for answers. With me again, crowdsourcer Chelsea and private investigator Lori Morrison from the podcast, The Unlovely Truth. Lori and I are joining forces this week to shine a light on what these families face. Please share both podcasts and use the hashtag two podcast, one mission. One of the first roadblocks we're going to talk about is whether the public information is really available to the public. You won't believe what Chelsea went through to get the answer to just one question. Or did she? Doing as many cases as we've done, there are certain things that are similar throughout. There's like a thread that goes through them and you can just follow it. One of the things is FOIA's freedom of information. When you ask a question to an authority, the response seems to be similar. Immediately want to deny your request or ignore it. They'll respond saying, we've gotten it, which is considered an official response. And then they have 14 days or 10 days or some places, seven days to respond. Florida happens to be one of those states that has transparency. They cannot hide too many things in Florida. What I'm finding through Chelsea's work is we've got a cloudy, muddy swamp area right now. Give an example of what you're dealing with for one simple answer. The longest thread of trying to get an answer for a simple FOIA request has been this surveillance camera outside of the CVS in Monk's Corner. And it all started when Vicki told me that there's a camera that's on a pole outside of that CVS and anyone who drove Katie's truck that night would have to have driven past this camera. So we could see potentially who was driving Katie's truck. Vicki told me that Captain Alec had requested the video and that he said that the camera wasn't working that night. So I'm like, you know what, let's make sure about that. You know, I just want to get an official statement saying we have nothing. This is critical information to have even if you're trying to confirm a theory of potential suicide. It should have been requested at the time of Katie's death. If it was requested, it would be easy to locate when a member of the public wants to see it. The best way I can explain everything that I've gone through is I'm just going to I'm going to read an email that I wrote to Mayor Locklear and it and town administrator Jeff Lord of Monk's Corner. 
It states, um, I'm writing to you both after a long and frustrating journey to find an answer to my question. My question is in regards to a surveillance camera located on a pole outside of the CVS on the corner of Highway 52 in Old Highway 52. I've been trying to find out who maintained that camera and, in, and any data collected from it in January of 2008. I started with the South Carolina Department of Transportation, who directed me to a website that showed all of its current camera locations. This camera was not on that list. From there, I checked with the Department of Public Safety and subsequently the Highway Patrol. They sounded baffled as to why I would be contacting them and stated that the only cameras they had were either body cameras or cameras in their cruisers. Next, I submitted an open records request with Lieutenant Meadows, and he is in Monk's Corner, for information about the camera as well as to the Berkeley County Sheriff's Office. Berkeley County replied that there are no records that match my request. Lieutenant Meadows sent me a letter. Uh, and in short, it states that he searched the town of Monk's Corner records and it revealed that the cameras located at that intersection were installed on or about January 5th, 2010. There were no cameras at that location prior to that date. We would not have had cameras in place during the requested time of January 15th, 2008 through January 17th, 2008. Furthermore, I checked our records and could not locate any request for video for this time period. This is where I got a little frustrated because I went on to Google because I, I trust Vicki. I trust what she tells me. She's proven herself time and again to be honest in everything she says. So I went on to Google Maps and I did Street View. And on there, you can go back in time to old views of the same street. And it went back as far as December of 2007. And in December of 2007, you can clearly see a surveillance camera on a pole located outside of the CVS. This is different from the camera that you can see currently. This one is kind of a, a little bit higher than the one that's currently there, but there is still a surveillance camera there. So I attached these pictures to show them that there was a camera there in 2007. Thinking it was a mistake, I asked if he could kindly check the records again. It was also around this time that I spoke to Administrator Lord and asked about the camera. He had told me that Lieutenant Meadows would be the person that he would check with to find that answer. Lieutenant Meadows responded again. He said, after receiving additional correspondence from you, I've researched further and checked with our evidence custodian and our IT contact. We do not have in our possession any video from the time frame of January 15th, 2008 to January 17th, 2008. So that to me was worded a little funny. Yeah, that's says, different. Not yeah. having any video is different than there not being a camera there. Well, and not only that, we do not have in our possession. I was like, does that mean it's somewhere else? Does that mean, did you own the camera or not? You know what I mean? So because of how that was worded, I spoke to, or I emailed him and asked him to clarify. And he said, I do not know who owned that camera at that time. Our camera server is located at the municipal complex and is not stored off site. We don't have a copy of any video from that time frame. I had our evidence custodian check the evidence room and the IT check the camera server that would be used to archive any video. I hope that clarifies for you. Let me know if you have any further questions. So I said, that's a pretty definite answer. So I thought, as you're likely thinking now, that I must not have checked well enough into the South Carolina Department of Transportation. 
Again, I contacted the Department of Transportation and the representative I spoke to said an open records request would have to be filed since it's not one of their current cameras. She filed the request for me, and later in that afternoon, I spoke with a FOIA officer from the Department of Transportation. After doing some research, she replied with the following. According to our engineer, the camera was owned slash maintained by the town of Monk's Corner Police and may still be there. Not wanting to leave any stone unturned, I responded that I was aware that the Monk's Corner Police Department had a camera there in 2010, but what about prior to that? And she answered, Unfortunately, we have no further information since the camera belongs to another municipality. We only have records of our own cameras who image, whose image stream is in real time with no images being stored on an electronic media. This will conclude the response of the South Carolina Department of Transportation to your request. In other words, don't contact us again. Stop, stop calling me. <laughs> but, of course, you know me. Again, I wanted to be absolutely sure that the Department of Transportation did not maintain the camera, so I sent her the following email. I said, I apologize for seemingly beating a dead horse here, but as I explained before, I just need to be able to, with 100% certainty, cross the South Carolina Department of Transportation off the list. Because of that, I feel it necessary to point out that the camera that was there in 2008 is actually a different camera than the one that was there starting in, at that time, what I believe was 2010. If you compare the two pictures, you can tell they are different colors and different spaces on the pole. I'm truly sorry to be so picky, but it's quite important to me. Thanks again for your assistance. And I sent her pictures. And she said, our engineer assumed the camera you mentioned for 2008 was the same today. However, I must stress, since we do not maintain the camera, we would have no further information on it. Again, that seems a pretty definite answer. I was stumped until I saw this. The picture above, which is one that I sent, that I used to compare to the one in 2008 was actually a picture from 2020. So wanting to be thorough, I wanted to see a picture as close to 2010 as possible because according to Lieutenant Meadows, the Monk's Corner Police Department got a grant in 2010 that they used to buy a number of traffic cameras, including the one in question. He stated in his response to me that the camera was installed on or about January 5th, 2010. If that is true, then why do the pictures from 2011 still show the old camera? If the Monk's Corner Police Department was using the same equipment that was there previously, they must know who owned it prior to 2010. It's the same camera. So either they took over that camera or they didn't start using it in 2010. It wasn't until after 2011. Again, I showed pictures, but I said, this is what I know. There was some sort of surveillance traffic camera at the corner of Highway 52 and Old Highway 52 from at least December 2007 to January of 2010. No one seems to know who owned it or even who to contact to find that information. There was some person or organization potentially monitoring the people of Monk's Corner for at least two years, and no one even knows what they were monitoring. That is a problem. I'm hoping one of you can provide me with an answer to my question or at least be able to point me in the direction of someone who can help. Almost exactly 24 hours later, I got a response from Administrator Lord, and he said, while the search of our accounting system did show cameras purchased in 2010, which led to Lieutenant Meadows' assumption that there were no cameras before that date, the purchase of a camera for that location was approved in the budget for FY, which I'm taking to mean fiscal year. Yes. Okay, for fiscal year 2008. Therefore, it's safe to assume that the camera in question did belong to the town. So within one day, 
Administrator Lord was miraculously able to find that the camera did, in fact, belong to Monk's. Well, he said it was safe to assume that the camera belonged to Monk's corner. I'm going to interrupt you. He had to safely assume it because you pointed out and you have shown him that you're not going to be pushed around or bullied by him trying to make you go away. He wanted you to go away. You've come back with facts and pictures. You can follow this. It's that thread. Just follow that thread through. Stop and think for a minute how Chelsea has had to request this information multiple times from multiple agencies, as well as going back to them to get clarification on what little information they did provide. Can you imagine putting a grieving family through this? You've done an excellent job. Had you not, had you been a grieving mother, you would have taken that and just moved along thinking they know what they're talking about, which they did not because they've proven they did not. Yeah. Well, b- before Chelsea goes on, I just want to say the point you made about imagine a grieving family having to email what? Four or five different people in different departments multiple times. You can't be expected when you're newly grieving to be able to stop and think about all the things that need to be done and that you have to make sure that they're actually getting done. This camera is a pinprick of the things that a grieving family, you know, if you're trying to show that your loved one didn't commit suicide, this this camera is one tiny detail in a list of thousands of details that you well, would have to check up on. When I talked to the Department of Public Safety, I cannot tell you how many phone calls I had to make. It was probably at least 20 phone calls. And every person I talked to was like, you want to be talking to the Department of Transportation? I'm like, no, no, I already talked to them. Like, (laughs) they just kept like being like, why are you calling me? I'm like, I'm just trying to make sure that, you know, I'm, I'm covering my bases, that no one, I'm not missing something. Records are supposed to contain verifiable facts. You should be able to get answers to questions that you can use to review or add to any investigation. But notice the word assumed. Meadows assumed. Are you kidding me? You are an investigator. You are a police officer. Are you really supposed to assume something You have someone asking you a question about your community. And the best thing that you said is for two years, somebody's out there monitoring the people in Monk's Corner. I think if I lived in Monk's Corner, I would want to know who owned and operated those cameras too. To this day, is it the city council? Is it Lord? Is it, you know, Olic? Who's monitoring that? And they can't even tell you. Well, you've got a civilian that figured this out. So you who are supposed to be investigators, this should not have been a big stretch for you to be able to get the answer to this. Had Captain Alec actually made the call in 2008, this could have been done. But the one thing, like I said before, the one thing Lieutenant Meadows did tell me was that there were no requests made for that video. No requests. So that means... Captain Alec never made the request according to Lieutenant Meadows. 
So no requests were made, but he told Vicki he made the request. Okay, what I remember is Rick Olick told me that there was a camera in front of CVS that what I remember was like the highway department owned and he was going to check with them to see, you know, it would show the vehicles coming or going from that night with Katie and Aaron. And then when I asked him about it later, he said that it was broken, it wasn't working that night, and that then there was no way to get any information. It's amazing to me in how many cases, again, a similar thread, the 911 calls disappeared for that particular date. The cameras weren't working. You know, I hear those excuses over and over when, in fact, it's someone who didn't do their job. The listeners are hearing all that Chelsea has done, but they can't see it. So she has written emails, made over 20 plus phone calls, well over that, at least, and drawn pictures, pulled things off of Google in order to show them what they already know. Now, are they playing a game or are they actually that incompetent? It makes you wonder. It really does. I would love to hear a defense of why it took such an enormous amount of time and energy to get a simple answer after they had to be told that the first answer they gave, we could prove with physical evidence was the wrong answer. Mm -hmm. And again, kudos to you, Chelsea, for being so dogged in your pursuit of finding this out because it's too easy to give up too soon. Yeah, I'm sure sure the poor people of Mom's Corner won't agree to that, but But it's it's their job to answer those questions. The the people, the constituents of Mom's Corner are probably cheering you on because I'm hearing from more and more people in that area of what they put up with. And finally, there's a big old light shining on them and they're hoping this podcast goes away. There are other media outlets coming. And they should, because it's not right. It's not right. It's a mom and two babies. Their beautiful lives were extinguished, and it's not right. For the people listening to this, again, understand this is a grieving mother that was told one thing, and it's taken Chelsea all this time and energy to put into finding the one answer. After Administrator Lord wrote that to me saying, you know, safe to assume that it was owned by then, you know, I was still in the dark on if any video had been kept from that time frame, you know, of the original request, because Lieutenant Meadows told me that there wasn't any, but he was also under the impression that they didn't have the camera until 2010. So was he for sure checking in the right time frame? You know, I wasn't sure. So I called the town administrator, Jeff Lord, and he basically told me that you know, he said, I, I'd asked because I said, look, I have camera images from 2007, December of 2007. You told me it was in the budget for 2008. So, you know, I'm a little confused by that. And he said, well, fiscal year 2008 actually starts October 1st, 2007. What he doesn't know is that I had previously requested town council meeting minutes from 2007. And I had read through it pretty pretty closely. And I saw no mention of any money going to surveillance cameras, security cameras. And they talk, you know, quite extensively about budget. So I can't say with 100% certainty, but I can say pretty well that it was not on the radar 
according to the town council meeting minutes for 2007 when you know i would imagine they would have talked about it so again i'm a little i'm a little shaky on that you know i don't truly believe it we'll, we'll have to push a little harder Chelsea has pushed pretty hard already, and you can certainly see why she's having doubts about the information she has been given so far. Sometimes it seems like you almost have to already know the answers you're looking for in order to know what questions to ask. I asked him if anyone would have to fill out a permit in order to put a camera up, you know, because I was looking for some piece of documentation to back up what they're telling me. This is what I, you know, I wanted a physical piece of paper that says this camera was put up at this time. It's owned by these people. But he said, you know, if it's the city's camera, then they wouldn't need a permit. Again, I asked him about would there be any video? And he said, you know, his servers, the servers back then weren't large. They usually got written over within 90 days. Unless it, there was a request to hold it or to download that information, it would have been overwritten. So I made the point that someone has come forward and said that they requested that video. If the person's telling the truth, then it should be there. And if they're lying, then that's a problem. And he had said that, you know, he, he's like, he assumed that it was the sheriff's department would be the entity that would ask for it. And he said, oh, if they had asked for it, we would have given it to them and they should have it. He didn't tell me a whole lot after that, but where we stand now is that if Captain Alec requested the video like he told Vicki he did, the sheriff's office should have it. However, Lieutenant Meadows stated no requests were made for the video from that time frame, nor do we have any documentation showing that a request was made. I do want to say that that's just one camera, and then you expanded your request, and they are even more obstinate in answering that. All that she did was on one camera based on what Rick Ollick told Vicki that he did, and there's zero record of him doing that, and there's zero evidence in any file that it was done. So if it's not in the file and it's not recorded, it didn't happen. Like you said, that's one camera on one corner. So when you've got a case that has travel involved, you've got several points where you'd want to see if you saw this truck pass. You've got the abandoned truck area. You've got the area where the bodies were found. You should have had the home. That's an awful lot of evidence to have to request when it's not being shared with you. And you have to request it basically piece by piece. You can't just give requests saying, I want everything that has anything to do with this case. You'll get turned down. You have to almost know what you're looking for and be able to name it very specifically or they'll deny you. The other thing I want to point out is this is one surveillance camera. What does this mean for the video that supposedly was obtained from the trains? You know, if they're pushing this hard against one little surveillance camera and having trouble keeping track of it, what does it mean for the, the video that could have shown exactly what happened? Even when you get all the information you've been asking for, it's wise to take it with a grain of salt. All investigators have biased and blind spots, so it's our job to be aware of them and stick to the facts that can be proven and be skeptical of what hasn't yet been verified.
Another thing we see in a lot of cases is that the person who is first reporting what has happened sets the narrative. And so they are purposefully misdirecting you or just misinformed or too hysterical. Whatever they say is really taken as gospel. And it's repeated and repeated and repeated to the point where people start addressing it as a fact and don't bother to confirm it. We have seen this, all three of us, in multiple cases where someone picks up the phone and says something along the lines of, there's a suicide here. And so they're immediately putting in someone's mind that you don't have to preserve certain types of evidence. You don't have to do certain types of investigation. You don't have to conduct certain interviews, but you don't know what happened. I mean, that's like me driving up to my house and I find a strange man on my porch holding my TV. And he says, thank goodness you're home. I found someone running out of your house with this TV and I was able to get it from them and they ran off. Am I really just going to accept that as fact? Or am I going to say, there's a good chance that this guy standing on my porch is really the one that broke into my house and I happen to catch him and he's trying to talk his way out of it. My point is just, you cannot take the statements you're given at face value. No matter who is giving it to you, you have to corroborate what you're being told. You don't just start telling other people, oh, so-and-so told me it was a suicide. The biggest point, you have to look at the physical evidence, the science. Science doesn't lie. What is the science telling you? Great, get witness interviews. But what did Katie, Aiden, and River tell Rick Olick and his crew at the scene? And what did he collect evidence-wise? And also, what did the medical examiner see? Because the medical examiner obviously should have done her job and really looked at it without being told by the police or Rick Olick what happened. But you and I know that the police nearly always will do that. They will present what they think happened or what a first 911 call told them happened They will just present that narrative, and then that medical examiner is walking in expecting to find things that confirm what they've been told. And so that's what they see. They they start interpreting it through that lens already rather than just going in knowing nothing. And like you said, let the body tell you what happened. Let the evidence tell you what happened. Let science tell you what happened. Exactly. Law enforcement agencies typically try to ensure that investigative steps aren't overlooked by instituting policies and procedures for officers to follow. But it has to be more than lip service in order to do right by victims and their families. I found in the policies and procedures from Berkeley County, there's a section called criminal investigations. And like, there's so many things in there that we talked about last week that are strictly written in their policies and procedures. And they did not, they just, they didn't follow it. What I have seen so far in the documentation in the investigation, if you want to call it that, is nobody followed any of the rules that were taught in any class anywhere, whether it's the police academy or a death investigation class, forensic class, none of it was followed. I don't know if they had a dinner date or if they they just, you know, nine to five and because they didn't fill out paperwork. 
So something was going on. They didn't have to get back to the station to fill out paperwork because we know the paperwork wasn't filled out right away. So what was it that they were so busy doing that they couldn't look and investigate and follow their own policy and procedures? Well, and I'd love the opportunity to ask, have you seen so many deaths? Have you had to process so many scenes that these are no longer people to you? These are no longer somebody's daughter, granddaughter, grandson. It doesn't move you to know that this could be your family. And would you want the investigator on that case to be doing what you're doing? So my question is, if that were your family, Rick Olick, would you want you showing up? Because I don't want you showing up. Would you want your integrity, technique, and skills showing up if it were your wife or your sons? Conducting proper interviews also has established methods. Let's look at what methods should have been used in Katie's case according to Berkeley County's own policy and procedures. Interviews may be conducted with victims, witnesses, suspects, and any other persons who may have knowledge about a criminal offense. Although there are many techniques available to assist interviewing suspects or witnesses, the following general guidelines will be utilized in most interviews. Conduct interviews as soon as possible so that the details of the offense are fresh, preventing the possible loss of vital information. Control the setting as much as possible. Interviews and interrogations should be held in a quiet private location free from outside distractions. Record the interview, either in a taped statement or in writing. Be prepared with as much information about the offense as possible prior to beginning the interview or interrogation. Develop through experience and training techniques to structure your interview that addresses the areas of the offense where information may prove useful. So, I mean, just with Aaron, you did it a week later. You didn't ask about his broken hand. That's just one area. I was looking for the spot that said how soon after they were supposed to have their reports done. It says, whenever the status of any case changes, the assigned investigating personnel must notify the complainant or victim of the change of status. This notification must be noted on a supplemental report form. So my request to Mr. Lewis asking for the dates and when the case was changed, and you know, I followed up again. It's been maybe three weeks. I'm not sure. He said we were, they were working on it. It should be pretty easy if it has to be written in a supplemental report when the status changed. This is a shell game that they play with families. So let's talk about, is it open? Is it closed? Is it open? What exactly is SLED investigating? Because there's a conflict of interest if they're investigating the investigation since they were part of the investigation. So how can they investigate themselves and Berkeley County? And we understand that Sheriff Lewis and the people at SLED have a relationship, but you need to bring in somebody who doesn't have a relationship, who can actually do a good job and see what's going on in that department. The family deserves a decent investigation. Katie, River, and Aiden are three human beings, and if Sheriff Dwayne Lewis is listening to this, he needs to look at his family and decide, would I want to be treated the way I've treated Vicki, Katie, River, and Aiden? I know that one of your big passions, Sheila, is we talked about protocols. We'd like to see those changed or, or even just followed. 
they're there a lot of times. They're just not always followed. But changing laws as well. Because I think that people would be shocked to know that sheriffs have little to no oversight. They don't report to anybody. There are, in in most states, there are no mechanisms that you can do a recall. Their staff serves at their pleasure. And so their staff understands that if I rock the boat in any way, shape, or form, I can be fired. And so they're just, there's so little accountability. And that's something that should change. Absolutely. And I know that one of the things that I'm a big proponent is oversight, citizen oversight. A lot of people don't like that in certain arenas. But I have former law enforcement officers that have worked with me and work with me. And one of the things that I have been told is that they don't like it because it makes them accountable. It makes the sheriff accountable for his actions. You know, when you talk about oversight, I think one thing that we wanted to talk about that we didn't fit in anywhere is an advocate for these families, kind of an oversight of how the family is being interacted with, giving tips for, hey, don't forget, we probably should do this. Because those families, they're so caught up in grieving and just trying to survive day by day. There's no way they're going to think of everything that needs to be done. They shouldn't. And unfortunately, in a lot of states, if, if you want to file a civil action to try to get some answers that you've maybe not been getting from the police, in over half the states in America, you have two years or less to file that civil action or the statute of limitations is over and you don't get to file your suit. And so families, unfortunately, don't have a luxury to take a long time to grieve. And if they had someone in their corner that was saying, you know, hey, I know this is hard, but here's here's a timeline and we need to be asking for this now. We need to be doing this now. I think that that would really help families in what has to be the toughest time of their lives. Sheriffs hold a lot of power. When you have an issue with one, who do you turn to? It wasn't until Lauren Agee's case that I found out a lot of information about sheriffs. And I just remember that still to this day is the most startling thing I've learned from following the cases that Sheila talks about. I was astounded to find in this country, they're, they're not accountable to anyone. How, how did we allow a system where sheriff of a town, and it, it's not like they're the head of the Department of Defense, you know what I mean? They, these are sheriffs all over the country that just holds so much power. And you can look in the news. Vicki just posted on Facebook today about all these, there, there were pictures of all these sheriffs and all these stories about corruption and, you know, things that they did. And that was just in one little area of South Carolina. It's astounding to me that no one has looked at this and said, hmm, maybe this isn't the greatest idea. Maybe we should, you know, have a higher authority have more involvement. They need to answer to someone. They lobby every time someone tries to get something like that passed. And so, you know, voters at large have said this before, I'm like a broken record, but be educated about who you're voting for and where they stand on the issues that are important to you. 
So if this sort of thing is important to you, you need to know more about it. You need to tell your friends about it and get them informed because it is going to take a huge number of people banding together to get this changed. And I'm so glad because I never knew. I never knew. I never, never, ever thought that a sheriff would hold that much power. And I didn't even know the question to ask. So I was so glad to learn that. And I'm so glad that you're mentioning it now because it's it's a problem. Well, a couple of things I want to point out. Think about this. Rick Olick is the head of an association right now. He had to be voted in by the people that you potentially are talking about that we're linking the sheriff's story on. Those are the people that out of all the people in South Carolina, he's the best they can do running this association. So does that scare every person listening to this right now? I I don't know. Does it? I don't even live in South Carolina and it scares me. Right. He's their role model. So look at the behaviors they're doing and learn it from. (laughs) That is a great point. He is their role model. He is the go-to guy, the head of the association. How did he get that position and how he holds that position? I would love to hear from people. I would absolutely love to hear from people. And I know I will. People call me and they leave messages and they email me. So do that on how Rick Hollick was voted to that position. And we're not asking for anything outrageous. Doctors have medical boards that you can make complaints to, and there's a procedure to have them investigated. Attorneys have the same thing. Any profession that's licensed, you've got that licensing board you can go to. If you're a professional and you're doing your job, you should not fear oversight or accountability. There is absolutely no reason not to have that with law enforcement. A lot of times in cases, I have heard over and over that families are threatened by law enforcement. If you do this, you will be arrested because you're interfering. So there's a fear tactic used and they are bullied by law enforcement who should be protecting them and giving them answers, but instead they're threatening and harassing them. I've read a summary of a case. It's uh, part of my podcast that you so graciously were my guest on. And you and I talked about that, where a pathologist threatened a family, if you keep asking questions about this, I will change the manner of death from natural causes to suicide. And he did. I mean, can you imagine? You're just asking questions. And, you know, to me, that calls into question Every single determination that pathologist has ever made, if you are willing to change the manner of death for a non-medical reason, how do I know that you have not done that before? And it's likely he has. I like totally blew anything I was going to say out of my head. I don't so know. shocking though, but what these families go through is so shocking and that's why it's so important for us to discuss it because the only way we're going to make changes is to shine a light on it. And for some families, that threat is even reaching into the afterlife. You know, if you're a devout practicing Catholic, a suicide cannot be buried in consecrated ground. And that's very important to a family. And so I don't know if this pathologist had information that 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 would be particularly distressing to a family, distressing enough to be called a suicide if you're not. But there are other implications, religious implications. That's an unbelievable threat. 
And he did it. And he did it. He did change that manner of death. And by the way, just so you know, Chelsea, we're going to look into that case. The one that they're talking about? Good. Because that's ridiculous. Yeah, we're going to shine a little light on that one. So against any medical integrity. Oh, no ethics. No ethics whatsoever. I was just going to say really quickly, a couple things. I think if you do get advocates, you know, if we do fight for advocates to help people through, you know, a grieving process while still making sure everything's going right. Honestly, I think they should be from out of town because of the threat, you know, like I'm here, I'm nowhere near South Carolina. And so I don't feel that pressure like they feel down there in that community. They can be pulled over at any time for any reason. And it's easier for me being removed from the situation to come and and actually bring information forward and call them out on things that aren't correct or aren't like they're doing the right thing or something because I'm not right in the mix of it. If you're going to have advocates, I think they should be from a point where one, they won't be threatened, but two, they won't be sucked into that environment, that, you know, good old boys club or whatever. I have a feeling that this whole sled investigation, they're just biding their time. And so the podcast stops shining a light on their investigation on Monk's Corner on Berkeley County. And then they're just going to sweep it right under the rug again. But they do not know. We're not going to let this go. I feel like they're just pushing us off and pushing us off and pushing us off while not doing anything, just waiting for us to kind of go away. That's why we need listeners to join the mission. We can't do this all by ourselves. We can't keep a podcast going on every case we do indefinitely. And really that community, I just want to say to them, not as a criticism, but as an encouragement, own what's going on. Be proud of your community enough that you say we can do better and we will. We can do better. Victims and their families need us to do better. Next week, I'm taking questions from listeners and talking about what they are saying outraged them the most about Katie, River, and Aiden's case. You will not want to miss it. If you have any information you want to share on the podcast regarding the deaths of Katie, River, or Aiden, email tips at SheilaWysocki.com or call 1-888-599-0008. Join Patreon and crowdsource justice with private investigator Sheila Wysocki. Without Warning Podcast, Season 3 Investigation, Derailed. Executive Director, Executive Producer, and Host, Sheila Wysocki and announcer, Tim Evans. Thank you to Lori Morrison of the podcast, The Unlovely Truth. Thank you to Danielle Birch, Chelsea Sarkowskis, and private investigator Jenny Moore for their boots to the ground, passionate, laser-focused research.